When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Coming up on this week's show, a way to preserve your N64 games forever. One of the biggest games of all time comes to the Dreamcast. And we chat to one of the world's longest running Amiga retailers, Matthew from Amiga Kit. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every week with our incredible mates at Bitmap Books. Now, one of my favourite books they've ever done, The Art of Point-and-Click Adventure Games. Now, I'm a huge fan of old-school point-and-clicks. If you are as well, this celebrates everything about that genre, packed with gorgeous imagery from the golden era of adventure gaming. You can check that out and the rest of their retro gaming collection. Have a look at their website at bitmapbooks.com. And with our lovely mates at PCBWay. Now, of course, you know about PCBWay. They offer top quality, fast turnaround PCBs and also services like 3D printing and CNC milling. And, you know, they're big supporters of the retro community. So if you're working on something right now, get an instant quote on their website at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 415, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast. And, you know, we love this. We never take it for granted. The fact that every week, you know, people tune in to hear three nerds geek out about old school video games. That is what this show is at its heart, isn't it? Absolutely. It's a roundtable chat. It's just three mates getting together. We ain't experts. We just give our opinions on a couple of games. And then the best part is we interview a couple of industry legends at the end as well, don't we? That is it. We're living the dream, because you know, when we set this podcast up, it's like the idea is, you know, we get to talk to the people who made the video games that we grew up playing. That was a big focus of the show. And it's expanded so much since we started doing the podcast. You know, magazines, we cover retailers, which we're going to be talking about this week as well. People making new indie games. We get out to shows as well. And I know actually you had a a really busy weekend last weekend, Joe. You actually met a few listeners in person and uh, made a few quid on your your classic games. I I did. I did. I was was down. I say down. I was up at the Leeds video game market. And uh, yeah, a couple of people came up and said hey, which is always wonderful. Always nice to meet people and everything. And yeah, really, really good time. But uh, it looked uh, rammed, mate. From the photos oh, that I saw, it looked <laughs> heaving. <laughs> it was heaving. And the Doncaster one's just been announced for May, which I think I'll be at as well. Uh, it was heaving, to say the least. And it was a long day. So I was extremely tired by the end of it. But um, absolutely loved it. Loved the atmosphere. It was absolutely electric. And uh, it just reminds you that the retro game scene is still alive and kicking for sure. Yeah, it's really weird because when, um, obviously we're going to be talking to our special guest this week, Matthew Lehman, who we'll talk more about in a moment. But actually, before we started recording, he said, you know, someone was telling him the other day that we're kind of getting to the age now where they kind of think the retro peak might have happened and it should be starting to come down in the next few years. But definitely don't see any of that from events and stuff that I've been to. It just seems like it's getting bigger all the time. Yeah, getting bigger all the time. Me and me and my mate Jason were always thinking like, oh, the price is gonna crash. You know, yeah. is, the, is the bubble gonna, gonna burst? Is the bubble gonna burst? <laughs> but uh, 
I don't know. People have been saying that for a couple of years now and it still hasn't happened. So we'll see. But we'll still be here if that does happen. We'll still of be course. here talking, <laughs> chatting, chatting about all this nonsense. and Chatting about nothing because there's no retro yeah. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, we'll I mean, be retro by then, guys. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about ourselves. Um, but and I know you're at a, a nice little event in Nottingham on Friday night as well. It's celebrating indie games, a lot of retro stuff there as well, Ravi. Yeah, it was, it was really nice. It was uh, the first debug indie games awards and um you know debug magazine specialize in covering indie games and we cover a lot of indie games on this show and you know indie games that kind of have a retro theme and it was quite nice to actually see some of them in person because uh you know we talked about some of these games but actually seeing the developers there getting to recognition uh on stage was really nice and it was like a proper award ceremony but you could also sit and play with the game so i came with uh paul jury from retro gaming magazine and um the ted dabney experience as well which is a really good podcast i reckon and the retro hour christmas quiz obviously oh yeah most famous yes. for that i'd say yeah. probably yeah yeah always always uh well not on the winning team last time but yeah, yeah. <laughs> i hope you rub that in it was it was a great event and uh you know seeing some of the games like uh videoverse uh won an mm. award and videoverse was one that we talked about very nice stylized game it was kind of based in this uh, fantasy, uh, like MSM hybrid kind of Mevers uh, kind of <laughs> area, and uh, you know it's all about social media. That one was gr- great to see that, and then uh, there was also uh, low tech games there as well. They've uh, got some titles that have come out on the um, NES, and uh, they've got like a, a an item called the Parasite Pack. And uh, Flea has come out on there, which was nice to sit down mm. and play Flea, uh, which is a nice piece of homebrew. And also another one, which is quite like Choo Choo Rocket, which is uh, called Choo Choo Mimic, uh, which came out. And that's in collaboration with Rigged Games as well, who's uh, John Riggs. He's a yes. quite a f- famous YouTuber as well. He came so that, out from America, didn't he, for the event? Yeah, he was actually yeah. there, yeah, from America. People flew from all over to come to this event because it was a real you know, first time celebration. And I mm. hope it happens every single year. Uh, Trista Bites was hosting as well and did a fantastic job, you know, getting mm. everybody involved. And uh, another game that was really notable was uh, Full Void. And it was great to see the Full Void crew because they were like, oh, you mentioned us on the Retro Hour and we were all excited. And it's just like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, because uh, Full Void's been picked for the Evercade. Yes, um, to actually come out on that. So uh, seeing some of these titles uh, was just fantastic in person. And uh, the indie games world and the retro world, they, they kind of combine in, in certain places. Yeah, quite a lot, I'd say. Because, I mean, obviously I've been to um, one event where I always see that is Pixel Heaven. Yeah. And I go to that over, over in Poland. I'd say probably about, you know, it's 50-50 split between indie and retro stuff. But like you said, there's such a big crossover. Um, and a lot of similar fans as well. A lot of people are into both, aren't they? So um I think definitely there's, you know, people have got their, their feet in both camps. Yeah, so, uh, uh, Sobe Tech was there. There were there were a few, um, mm. you know, previous people we've had on the podcast as well, um, you know, PC Zone magazine. And uh, yeah, it was great. Yeah, I'd love to have come to that. Unfortunately, I, well, I say unfortunately, I was in London at the weekend. Went to see the uh, the Back to the Future musical. So uh, not not quite retro gaming, but definitely retro related. Sounds um, cool, yeah. Yeah, which was a great laugh on Saturday afternoon when we saw that. So that's the thing now that January is out the way, it just kind of feels like, you know, it's going to be like this for like the next six months now. 
just events on like, you know, every couple of weeks and uh, definitely one of the highlights when we get into that time of year. And obviously we were talking about last week that your uh, your big Amiga event's going to be coming up in Nottingham uh, this summer in uh, in June, at the end of June, Kickstart 02 for Amiga fans. And actually today on the podcast, we're going to be talking to someone who uh, was uh, an exhibitor at your show last year, but someone that we've known for a very long time. And anyone that goes to Amiga events around the world will be familiar with our guest this week because actually some people are are not into the Amiga world. You know, this might this might surprise Joe, for example, who's, you know, many a console fan. But Matthew, our guest this week, has made a full-time job out of selling Amiga products for 20 years now. It's pretty amazing because um, I, I remember Matthew from the dark days. With, with the Amiga, there was a big collapse of uh, Commodore and pretty much everyone kind of left. Um, they were bought by SCOM and there was Gateway and all of this kind messy of... messy story. <laughs> yeah, lots of mess for many years. And at one point, um, Amiga Kit was one of the only companies where I could actually buy anything. You know, there are a few other retailers as well, but um, you'd have to get little bits from one person, little bits from the other. And, uh, you know, they've survived all this time and turned it into a business. And they're also mm. releasing a new console as well, the uh, A600GS, which is... Pretty amazing because I think this is the first time they've dipped their toe into creating a little machine. Yeah, now we did kind of touch on this briefly last week when you and I were like basically doing our uh, our ten minute Amiga geek out that we regularly do when uh, Joe normally goes off for a drink. Yeah, this is why um, Joe's silent at the moment. Yeah, he's yeah. just like over his head. I'm just like, yeah, Amigas. <laughs> well, guess what? Joe did, did borrow my Amiga 500 Mini, didn't he, last year? I did. Um, I did. He had it for for a couple of weeks and we're playing around with it. And obviously, that's kind of been the system that, in terms of kind of modern Amiga hardware has been getting the most attention over the last year or two, um, which is, you know, a device that you can walk into a mainstream shop. You know, they sell them in like HMV and Game here. Um, you plug it into your telly. It's got a lister on there with a bunch of built-in games. Put a USB stick in with your own downloaded games. Play them, plug and play, dead simple. But the first thing I did when I got my A500 Mini, and, you know, people might have watched my YouTube video on this, is um, I basically tried to hack it and put the Amiga operating system on there and load Workbench and run applications. Because to me, that was a big part of the Amiga. I mean, obviously, I played a load of games on the machine. But I also like love, like, you know, playing around in, you know, Deluxe Paint and trying my hand at, you know, even though I was terrible at it, making music on the machine. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, which uh, I've got some tracks that will never see the light. I, I want to hear those tracks done. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody wants to hear these tracks. But, I mean, that was such a big part of the Amiga as well. So, I mean, that this system that they've made, which is um, coming out in a couple of months' time, it's called the uh, A600GS. Um, it's going to be very competitively priced. We'll hear more about that with uh, with Matthew soon. It is basically a small device. It's uh, around the size of uh, maybe a pack of cards um, that will have some legacy ports on there, so you can plug in, like, a classic Amiga joystick and a mouse. But really, even though this will run all of your classic Amiga games, they're focusing this a bit more at the market that might want to run things like, you know, uh, Octomed or personal Yeah, yeah kind of, you know, the applications, but also, like, there's so much choice out there. It, you know, there was at one point where Amiga kit kind of started that hardly any hardware was coming out full stop. Yeah. Now we've got so many choices and so many options. It's absolutely great to see all of this activity and, all these all these machines and devices coming out. So we're going to talk to Matthew about the company's history, but we're also going to talk in detail about the device because, you know, we've had uh, many devices on this show and uh, yep. details and stuff. So hopefully, you know, if, if you've been wondering about it, you'll, you'll be able to pick up some information in this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've had friends who've bought Amiga 500, you know, the A500 minis to basically try and use them 
as like you know Amiga computers, you know, obviously which you can I've do. I've got friends that are putting PlayStation games on. This, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. God, you can do so much with it now. Uh, but having a device that is you know basically targeted towards the the people who want to use the creative side of the Amiga in 2024 and, you know, having an internet-connected device as well. There's like a store on there. So we'll hear all about that and kind of a bit about, you know, the hardware side of it as well, what it's based yeah. on with our special guest, Matthew Lehman. He's coming up from Amiga Kit, the managing director on the podcast in around 35 minutes from now. But if you're a regular listener, you'll know the way the podcast normally works. The way we do it is our first half, we do a little roundtable chat a bit about what's been happening in retro from over the last week and bring you up to speed on all the big stories because we appreciate everyone's busy. Not everyone's got time to trawl all the social media sites and the websites like we do. So we give you the highlights of what's been happening over the last week. And um, speaking of platforms that have been getting quite a lot of love recently, and there have been quite a f- we've talked about a few of these little devices recently for other platforms as well. Devices that can let you essentially back up your saved games and more, because this device goes way beyond that. This is something new for the Nintendo 64 called the Joey N64. Yeah, this uh, this looks wicked. I spotted this on Nintendo Life. We've done a really good video about yes, it. Yes, I watched nine, it this morning. Yeah. yeah, I watched it this morning as well. It's about nine minutes long. It's got several functions, which you know are all really cool. Um, and the, the, the main one being you can back up your files from it, your... I say your files, your games from it. You so, save games. You save games, yeah. So uh, you literally plug it straight into your computer and then the device itself, the Joey N64, is like just a flat piece of plastic with a the cartridge pins on it to plug your N64 cartridges into and then a N64 controller port. And to download your save files from the N64 memory card, you literally just put the N64 memory card into the back of the N64 controller as you had to with an N64. Yeah. And then just plug the, plug the controller straight into the Joey 64 and then that, you know, into your computer and you literally just drag and drop them over. But um, what I found really interesting about the hardware of the Joey N64 is you don't need to download any software. As long as your computer recognises uh, USB drives, it recognises it as a USB drive and you literally just drag and drop it over, which is absolutely fantastic. And you can do the same with your cartridges. So you pop the cartridge into, obviously, into the cartridge slot of it, plug it into your computer and you just drag the ROMs over from the cartridge into your computer, into the storage. And obviously you run it in emulation or whatever you want to do with it, copy yeah. onto another cartridge, etc. Um, but there's two of the functions, so you can legally back up your games and save your save data, which in the video he says he's not really bothered about the save data because of a lot of the N64 games, if not most of them, you could save directly onto the cartridge and you didn't actually need a memory card. And if I remember rightly, they weren't the most reliable memory cards. But then the batteries die in them sometimes. Mm. You, you know, it's a way of, I guess, preserving that. You know, if you yeah. have got quite far into a game and, you know... If- you don't want to lose it when the battery goes and you can't if it hasn't already. Yeah, I guess so. But uh, what I found really interesting was the part about where you can actually plug it straight into your iPhone yeah. and uh, you can download an app on your iPhone. What that allows you to do is say you're out and about, you're at a games market or you're in a game shop or something and you come across a really rare, expensive N64 game, maybe StarCraft 64 Resident Evil 2. You can rip the ROM at the... Front. No, no, no. <laughs> not, you probably not, could, to be fair. Yeah. You probably could. You probably could. But not a case of ripping the ROM. You don't want to part with your hard-earned cash because you're worried it's a fake game 
it will actually tell you if it's a legit game, if the files oh, on nice. are legit or if they're emulation, uh, which is really interesting. Bit of a strange one if you're in the stood in the middle of a game retro game shop and you're like, can I plug this N64 cartridge? Yeah, bearing in mind if that's phone. a game like you said, one of these games that costs like three or four hundred pounds. Yeah. I bet what are you really going to plug that into that weird device that's plugged into your phone? What what is that doing? Yeah, it might, it might take some convincing. You need like a wrist mount and like an extension <laughs> lead, and then do it on the slide. But yeah, uh, a, a really cool little device. Um, the biggest downfall that uh, they've said is it is sold out instantly. Um, yeah. 50 quid for one, um, which isn't oh, 50 dollars. Yeah. $50 are sold out at the moment, so keep your eyes peeled if more are produced to go on sale, but I'm sure they will, seems like it's sold out immediately. Yeah, and um, I think, you know, we, we've seen a few of these for other systems. We're talking about a PlayStation one, I think, a while ago, weren't we? Mm. Um, wake up, back up your PlayStation saves. I mean, I must admit, I've I've been playing on my N64 recently because we're doing a new episode of the After Hours podcast, which has been delayed slightly because uh, I had a my AV cable died for my uh, N64, which I mentioned on the show last week. But I did spend a good uh, hour and a half or so on a game on Sunday night that we're going to be talking about on the uh, the Patrons Only podcast. And I got quite far into that game, and I thought, well, I've saved it on my original N64 um, memory card. Uh, but there's probably not that many I've got that I'd, I'd care that much to back up the saves. But I, I guess there will be people that maybe got to a certain level, you know, in a game 25 years ago and... You want to keep that forever, I think. That aspect of it, I guess, you know, that there is definitely... It's a niche audience, I think. And obviously the fact that most N64 games have already been dumped anyway. Yeah. But for some people, there is just something... I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, that's... Well, I mean, that is one aspect of it. It's a legal way of doing it. But it's weird because, I mean, all the Amiga games have been, you know, dumped. All, all the discs, you know, pretty much every variant of Amiga games available to download online. But still, I've actually backed up a lot of my original discs I've got here just because they were my copy of it. I know it sounds weird. Mm. It's it's just data. It's just bits and bytes. But the fact that I've got a backup on my machine of my original discs that I got when I was a kid, you know, my copy of it's preserved. That that just uh, I know it, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense. And again, it probably is quite a niche thing. But I think th- there will be an audience that wants to preserve their own collection of games. And like you said, you know, the fact that you can, I think that legal, you know, that legit checker that's in there to see if they're their original cards or not, I think that is probably a big selling point yeah. for hardcore collectors. So uh, for $50, though, I think, you know, anyone that's got an N64 will be a nice little addition to their uh, their collection. So if you want to check that out and uh, keep an eye on the link for when that becomes available, I'll link that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, Minecraft is a game that appears can run on uh, a load of different platforms. I remember running Minecraft on my, uh, my Power Mac G5, that must and, have been uh, the Java version of it, right? Yeah, like, I think yeah. it either ran in Java or JavaScript, wasn't it? I can't remember. I think it was, you're right, it was Java, the original um, build of Minecraft ran in. And um, I remember running it on a G5 Mac, which you've got to think in terms of timeline. I think I got that in around, the machine I've got is quite a late G5, probably around 2005, four, five. So probably about 20 years ago now. Got a decent graphics card for the day in there, you know, dual-core CPUs. And running Minecraft on it, it ran in a window, but actually it was a little bit laggy. It felt like it was using like, you know, 100% of the CPU to kind of play the game. It was playable, you know, at a reasonable frame rate. But it is one of those games where I think a lot of people looked at it when it came out. And they were like, you know, the graphics look like really rudimentary. Like These look like 8-bit graphics. But actually for the time, it was, you know, a reasonably demanding game. For the hardware, you had to have, you know, you couldn't run it on like a your standard office PC at a comfortable frame rate. But actually, it turns out that this has been quite amazing to see, actually. 
people have got it running, a, a version of Minecraft called their Classic Cube, which is basically a, a custom client for Minecraft Classic, um, written from scratch in C. It's basically a fan reinterpretation of it, the creator mode of Minecraft. Someone's got this running very smoothly in Alpha State on the Sega Dreamcast. I, what do you guys I, think of this? I've never played Minecraft. Okay. What? Wow. Yeah. Now, but I now was, there's I was, an omission, Joe. We so, should have got you to play that for the uh, the after hours <laughs> we're doing this weekend. I, I was, uh, you know, mentioning the Java. I was like an original Minecrafter from those uh, Java days, and uh, it, it's a very different game. It's it's changed a lot. It's a whole kind of ecosystem and world now uh, with learning and uh, you know so many functions that you can do and add-ons and stuff. It, I kind of got mm. lost in it, but I do really prefer this classic old kind of version of minecraft and and how it was back in the days but um yeah it's it's such a popular title um it's also not just for kids as well yeah i mean i remember getting it when it was um it was notch wasn't it the guy that was behind it originally yeah um i remember getting that in the right must have been when it first came out around 2009 i think it was i remember downloading that on my um probably windows vista or windows 7 pc whichever one i had about that time um, and I, I think I paid about nine quid to register the game because you could. Yeah, it was a free uh, originally with Mojang, and then later yeah. on you could upgrade that and keep upgrading it. You know, which I think I still got on my PC to this day. You know, that original kind of you know nine nine ten pound copy that I I bought back then. But I mean, it is a game that obviously kids kind of took over it. It became known as kind of a kids game. But originally, I mean, there was quite a quite a big geek kind of adult community. In the yeah, Minecraft I, th- world I think there still is. It, it all depends yeah. because there's all these add-ons, there's all these different functions. Mm. Um, you know, you, you can have mod packs on there. Modding is a huge thing. You can change the entire kind of title. And, uh, you know, stuff like Robot, Roblox has spawned from it as well, which is a, a huge thing. And it's kind of defined that whole genre of, of games and definitely brought stuff like crafting into into popular titles as well. Well, this um, this project on GitHub, which I'll link up, which has now been ported to the Dreamcast, it's called a Classic Cube. And I was kind of a little bit aware of this, but I hadn't looked too deeply into it until today. Um, and it turns out it's been ported to a load of different systems. I mean, obviously, you know, there's a Windows and Mac OS port, runs on Linux as well. There's iOS and Android ports. There's even ports for stuff like um, OpenBSD and Haiku and Solaris. And um, someone's actually made a version of it for the... Silicon Graphics workstations running on Irix. Oh, wow. Which, obviously, Silicon Graphics were, you know, very impressive back in the 90s. But now someone's got, you know, Minecraft running very well on this machine as well. Looks like there's a version on the N64 yeah, from the GitHub wow. page too. I, I think the things that really eat up the memory with uh, Minecraft and and like similar clone titles as well, because this is Classic Cube, um, it's usually the uh, NCP, NPCs in it. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, NCPs. Oh, I can never say that. Correctly. Non-playable characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and also, <laughs> also the world, the size of the world, and the size of the map. And looking at this, you know, it looks like quite a small window, and 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 the world is quite small, and the draw distance isn't huge either. You know, no. they're on a small island and stuff, and that's probably bearable. I couldn't imagine what it would be like loading in a huge world. You'd probably get down to like, um, you know, this is hitting about 60 frames per second on some of the stuff, you probably get down to a, a lot lower than that. But for the resolution, it looks very sharp. Yeah, but yeah, it looks great as well. And mm. then consider you'd have the VGA output as well on the yeah. Dreamcast. Um, 
Yeah, it's 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 very impressive for a console of its generation. Yeah, some, you know, a system that came out in 1999. And um, this it's basically an alpha state right now just to kind of prove that the engine can run on the Dreamcast. Um, only landed this week. Um, and basically, like you said, Ravier, you can just kind of walk around it. Uh, but hopefully, I, I mean, I'm looking at this and I think it's got all the, the framework there to kind of build this into, a, you know, a playable world. And hopefully we'll get the, the characters and stuff in there and, you know, actually be able to, to do some stuff in it. It'd be cool um, if they had like Dreamcast skins as well. And, yes. uh, you know, you could, you could do like the virtual tennis guys. Yeah, or Sonic <laughs> or something in Minecraft. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. Um, so there is a, a nice little walk around on YouTube on a channel called Video Game Esoterica. Uh, there's like a nine minute kind of walk around and shows you kind of how well it runs. And like, like you said, it kind of, it's basically logged into around 58 to 60 FPS throughout most of this video. So the fact that that is running, I think, is, you know, technically very impressive on the Dreamcast, so uh, we'll keep an eye on uh, the development of that. But it's nice to see Minecraft landing on the Sega Dreamcast. So I've got more stories to talk about in a moment, including a big indie game that has come to the, uh, has been made in the style of N64 games, if you're an N64 fan. And also um, a classic Amiga title that could be coming back for 2024. Uh, before we do that, though, you might remember that just before Christmas, I think it was back in November, I know this is one of your favourite episodes that we've done in a long time, Joe, being our, our resident horror fan. Absolutely. And uh, we caught up with uh, Dan Richardson, who is involved in this huge new documentary, a mega documentary, if you like, dedicated to horror video games, which I think is going to clock in at over five hours long, called Terabytes. Yeah, man. Yeah, this is going to be absolutely huge. So we had to get Dan back on for a couple of minutes just to kind of reveal some of the huge names, some of the titans of that genre and industry who are going to be involved um, some really surprising names as well uh, that they've managed to get involved in it. So, yeah, let's catch up with Dan. Yeah, because we did tease, like, you know, kind of that there is some big names involved when we had him on back in November. Mm-hmm. And also we can uh, reveal that now if you want to get hold of the documentary, pre-orders have just gone live yesterday. So we thought, like you said, good chance to get Dan back on the podcast. How's it going, Dan? Welcome back. Uh, very glad to be here. Thank you for having me again. Is it too late to say Happy New Year? I think uh, <laughs> it feels like a while ago now. <laughs> I, I, think, I think January is your cutoff point. I yeah, all right, fair enough. each other just a week or so ago. We've been all right. <laughs> now it's like, uh... Well, uh, obviously Terabytes, as we mentioned, is uh, is finally here. So um, for people that might have missed that episode, just give us a little synopsis on um, on, on what, this, what this project's about. Yeah, sure thing. So Terabytes is the latest documentary from Creator VC. We are the development team behind In Search of Darkness, which is a franchise documentary series looking at 80s horror films. And we recently took our first foray into the video game world with FPS Doc, which was a look at the 50-year-plus legacy of the first-person shooter genre featuring guests like John Romero, John Carmack, Warren Spector, all the big names. Uh, So our latest thing is obviously Terabytes, and we are looking at horror gaming. Um, So what we've done for for this documentary is we have gathered up some of the titans of that industry, and we are looking to explore this genre of genres if you will it isn't one that sort of fits neatly into a box it kind of has a little bit of everything the survival horror there's fmv games of the 90s there's indie hits and all of those kind of wonderful things and we've just sort of really owned honed in on all of these little small pockets of horror within the medium of gaming and took people from those pockets and had them fully explore 
all of the intricacies and emotional decisions behind all of the creative work we love so much. So you mentioned some titans of the industry there. Can we ask who's going to be involved in the documentary? To be honest, I could literally give you the whole list. There's really no weak links here. We're very, very, very happy with our cast and the cast list is still growing. Uh, But to give you some highlights, again, not that anybody in this thing wouldn't be a highlight. They're all very good. We have the likes of Matthew Cote and Dave Richard, who are the co-directors of Dead by Daylight. Obviously, the massive smash hit asymmetrical horror that has every license under the sun at this point. It's basically the Super Smash Brothers of horror games. We Mm -hmm. have indie creators like Adolf and Dave Szymanski, who made Faith, the Unholy Trinity, and Iron Lung, respectively. We have classics like um, the Williams couple, uh, Roberta and Ken Williams, who obviously were the co-founders of Sierra Online, so we've got them in to talk about things like Phantasmagoria. Personal favourite of mine, we have... A man who I genuinely consider to be the greatest composer in video games. He, he is probably matched only by the likes of Nobuo Matsu and Koji Kondo. We have Silent Hill composer, producer, and sound designer Akira Yamaoka. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, and there's so much more I could say, but if I started listing um, everybody, we'd be here all day. It's an absolute mammoth cast, and I really encourage you guys, uh, if you're listening, look at the website, um, click on the cast list, and just see some of the names we've got attached to this. It's a really impressive list of just some of the most important names in the Mm. genre, Mm. and I'm really excited to dig into their brains and their stories and just really celebrate their achievements within this medium. You know, when we had you on last time, you mentioned about a, you had like a a survey that was running on your website where people could go on there and basically tell you what they wanted from this documentary. Have you had a lot of feedback then? Has that kind of helped? Has that kind of shaped it? Yeah, yeah. It's a huge reason why Akira Yamaoka is there. (laughs) So we do, we do genuinely listen uh, to our, you know, sort of survey responses. Like we're not one of these people who's like, oh, you know, answer this and we'll just get your marketing email. We literally read like every response. And Akira Yamaoka is somebody we were, you know, wanted to get anyway, but it's a pretty difficult connection with the, um, the, you know, the language barrier and the mm. international uh, difference. But when we saw how much he was requested within the surveys, it was kind of a thing of like, oh, we, we, we can't not. Um, and a lot of people who have been requested in the surveys w- are people who service in the cast. It kind of reaffirms some of the decisions we already had in mind, but it also helped us in informing kind of more off-the-wall talent. Um, so we've got like uh, a lot of kind of more indie creators who would have been on our radar but weren't necessarily in the space from the moment we decided to make the documentary. Right. Um, so we've got like creators like Akuma Kira and uh, if you don't know who they are, they developed Spooky's Jumpscare Mansion, which was kind of like a big 
development in the mascot horror scene, you know, sort of alongside Five Nights at Freddy's and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we have like some, you know, we're, we're, we're talking, we've got people who kind of span so much of this history. We've got people, like I say, going all the way back to Phantasmagoria. We've got Rob Fulop, who is the designer of Night Trap, which is a brilliantly cheesy, controversial game. Uh, I'm sure if anybody knows the game in history, will be very familiar with. But then we go all the way up to the modern day and we have... Um, Black Tabby Games, that is the couple, Abby and Tony Howard. Uh, they made the very recent title, Slay the Princess, which is a really interesting cosmic horror, multi-narrative branching path visual novel. It's a really fascinating game. I encourage you to check it out. Well, it's um, it's great to see that this has finally come to fruition and people can get hold of it now. That's one thing. I mean, you know, people look at the the previous films that you guys have worked on, you know, In Search of the Last Action Heroes, the In Search of Darkness series. These are top quality. I mean, anyone that's got an interest in the genre, um, I've got every faith that this is going to be a really well-delivered and really beautifully put together um, documentary. Where can people get this from and what's kind of the, the running time of it then in the end? So we're doing it slightly different this time. So it is yeah. going to be like a five-hour mega doc, and you certainly can watch it that way. However, yeah. this time it's going to be a series. It's going to be five-hour-long okay. episodes. And the reason we're doing that is the when people think horror gaming, they gravitate towards survival horror. And mm-hmm. you could certainly do a five-hour documentary on survival horror and not even scratch the surface. But one of our primary concerns was we didn't want to leave in any leave out any rich history that didn't fall within that parameter. Yeah. So, you know, like if you only focus on survival horror, you can't really talk about a lot of indie horror and all of those experimental titles. You can't really talk about something like doom, which primarily is an FPS. Yes, but is also one of the most important games of all time and was also designed as a horror game, it was designed to be scary. You know, you've got things like Castlevania that fall out in that remit, and you've got things like the FMV scene. So what we've done with this is we've structured it into these five episodes that take a specific topic and deep dive into that topic. Uh, we have a synopsis on the uh landing page which is where you can also buy the documentary and that is on terabytesdoc.com well i'll I'll put the link in the show notes down so people can just click straight through um to check it out and we had some great feedback when you were on last time so i know there's been uh, a lot of people hyped for this as well so that's uh best to look with it and i hope you get some really nice feedback from people when they've uh, got around to watching it yeah um i can't wait for people to see it we're very excited so if you do want to pre-order that a massive love letter to Horror Games, Terabytes, the documentary. Um, filming starts on that very soon, so we can get yourself in the queue to uh, get a copy of that. As soon as it lands, I'll link up the website in our show notes and all the rest of the stories at theretrohour.com. Now, we're going to be talking to uh, Matthew from Amiga Kit, one of the world's longest-running Amiga retailers who is still doing Amiga as his full-time job, which is incredible. And if we're talking about the Amiga, though, there is, um, you know, you think of the early days of the Amiga Revy. There is one title that for me is a real standout. And I, you know, from people we've spoken to, it was definitely a system seller in the earliest days of the Amiga. And that was Defender of the Crown. Were you a fan of that game? Dun, 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 dun. I, thought, I yeah. thought you might be. Oh, I absolutely <laughs> love Defender of the Crown. Yeah. Um, kind of to the point that I seeked the Prime version, and that mm. was a CDTV version. Yes, I remember I that, that with a lot of the animated backgrounds. It was, it was a great game, and, uh, you know, any game where uh, Robin Hood is involved in it, um, I'm always on that. But uh, <laughs> it was such an epic title with beautiful graphics done by Jim Sachs, and that really showed the kind of, uh, you know, power of the Amiga back then. And it was all hand-drawn, and... 
Yeah. You know, I don't think there's a, a game that looks like it. I must admit, uh, you know, going back and playing it now, I think still graphically, it really holds up. I find some of the, you know, the jousting parts of it, I find the controls quite fiddly. Yeah. Um, when I'm going back and playing it, some of the character movement and the, you know, the, obviously that was a very early game. Well, well it's always, it always got those different sections, hasn't it? And there's yeah. different elements of gameplay in there, but it's it's that classic kind of medieval, uh, you know, story with uh, love and romance. And uh, yeah, just an absolutely beautiful title. And I love the pace of it as well. Yeah, and it's got, you know, some beautiful lighting effects and stuff in there too. Um, a real, you know, technical marvel when the Amiga first landed back in 1985. But the reason we're talking about this today is um, it's interesting that um, a Lithuanian company, this is a company called Nordcurrent, they're known for a, a title called Cooking Fever that I wasn't familiar with. But basically what they've done is they've now acquired the rights to the game lineup of Cinemaware. Because Cinemaware were around for a long time. I believe, didn't they have a bit of a revival uh, yeah, decade? recently they, they actually released a, a really nice edition of uh, Defender of the Crown, but also some some other cinema titles. Uh, you know, It Came from the Desert was another fantastic kind of a B-movie title yeah. that they had out. And uh, I think Red Baron might have been cinemaware as well. I know there were like um, some re-releases in recent years. I think they, from looking at their Wikipedia page, they basically went under in 1991. And then they had a bit of a comeback in 2000 to 2005 when their trademarks were acquired. And then there was stuff like, you know, there was Robin Hood Defender of the Crown that came out on the Xbox in 2003. Um, there was that reboot of Defender of the Crown, I think came out on the Game Boy Advance in around 2002. That's kind of an updated version of it. Um, the digitally remastered Collector's Edition came out on Windows and Mac as well, where they updated the graphics and sound and everything as well. But basically there is a new company now, this, um, this Lithuanian developer, um, Nordcurrent have now acquired um, the iconic titles from Cinemaware, including Defender of the Crown. It came from the Desert Wings as well, and the same. Wings, what they're going to be doing? That was it, not Red Baron. <laughs> well, did I say Red Baron Wings? I was going to yes. say, yeah, I was checking such out. A, such a big title, yeah. <laughs> well, now Nord Nordcurrent are basically saying that the reason they bought these is they want to remaster them and bring them back to modern platforms, and they're going to be starting with a remaster and uh, an update of Defender of the Crown. So it's going to be coming back for modern systems. It's really tough because I've looked at this Nordcurrent site and it looks like kind of flashy mobile, um, right. <laughs> kind of, you know, uh, like not amazingly well-styled okay. stuff. Um, and you're touching a classic there. You're yeah. touching an absolute classic and you're trying to redo it. And I honestly don't think they've got it in them. Um, sorry, it's really like hard it is, to Ravi, say. Say like it is. But yeah, you know, they might be listening now and be like, "Right, I'm going to show up. We're yeah. going to do it. We're going to do it. We're We've do it. hired Jim Sachs. We're yeah. going to show you." Yeah. Um, I, I know what you're saying though, because it is such an iconic title. It does kind of feel like you know, messing with art in a way. Exactly. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of how it feels to me. And uh, yeah. you know, I don't know, Rocket Ranger. It, that was a good game, but it was always hard to play um, for me just to get him off the ground. Yeah. That might work well in mobile and stuff, but looking at their stuff, it looks like, you know, cook, this cooking fever is kind of like a flashy, right. you know, um, paid more coins to get higher and stuff like that. So I think it's... You're not wrong. It, 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 <laughs> might, be, it might be they've just kind of, uh, you know, bought the brands and they're going to ride off that a bit um well, but, looks like but they might surprise us you never know 
Well, it looks like, yeah, they are generally known for mobile games. That seems yeah. to be their kind of bread and butter. Um, uh, but it does say, I mean, you know, from from the, uh, obviously this is a press release, so it's obviously going to be, uh, you know, positive spin on things. It says that they are a growing player in the PC and console gaming industry. Um, interesting they managed to get their hands on the Cinemaware catalogue, though. Yes, I mean, yes, there must have been a deal done there. Yeah. yeah. I just kind of feel like, I mean, obviously these games are, you know, knocking on 40 years old now. And they've been, I imagine the rights have been through quite a few hands since the demise of Cinemaware in 1991. It makes you wonder kind of what the value is in these today. Because, I mean, obviously there will be a, a generation of us who fondly remember these games. But again, I think that makes it even more difficult, doesn't it, to kind of give these games the respect that they deserve? Yeah, it's like, title. you know, Streets of Rage and stuff, they changed the style and they brought some cool music in yeah. and, they, and they took a real different kind of direction. And, uh, you know, that might happen, but I very much doubt it. Um, sorry, Nord Current. Well, bearing in mind that Ravi is a guy that said the um, the Nintendo Switch will be a massive failure. Yeah, those, those are my predictions. Not, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not, not that we bring that up very often on the Nintendo podcast. Nintendo are dead. They're just gone. Yeah. <laughs> so, Long live Nordcurrent. It's interesting to see that someone's doing something with the IPs, though. So, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll keep an yeah. eye on that. And uh, as we hear more, we will let you know. Now, um, obviously, we're all big fans of the N64. Like I said, you know, been uh, been playing mine quite a bit this week. Um, enjoying having it set up. Um, I think I'm going to leave my N64 set up permanently in my office now because I've had it away in my, in my wardrobe for a couple of years. And I feel like that's a bit disrespectful to it because it's such a cool system, isn't it? And the games have definitely got a unique look. Now, um, there is a massive indie game called Celeste that many mm-hmm. people will be familiar with. And um, it turns out that the, the the creators of that game are obviously fans of the N64 as well, because the sequel to it um, not only looks very much like an N64 game, but it's even titled, um, not so subtly, Celeste 64. Yeah, this is really cool. So it's it's a pseudo-sequel. Um, I, I, You know what? I feel like Dan's usually the resident, like, I've never played this game. I've never played Celeste either. Uh, oh, Joe. I know. you not have played that? I know. Really? Ravi said it's fantastic, <laughs> and, I, and I've been recommended it many, many times. Well, what is Celeste and Ravi? I've not played this either. It originally came out on the Pico 8. And mm. um, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a popular indie game and uh, done in a kind of, uh, uh, it's got interesting mechanics. So this was at a time when, uh, you know, mechanics were were getting put into them. Uh, oh, there was another one where you could rewind time. Um, it also had like a stuff like Midair Dash, which was a, a big kind of move you could do in it. Uh, I only played in it very quickly, but um, mm. you know it's 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 very nice, and I know it was very popular, and um, it had a, a a main protagonist as a as a young girl as well. Yeah, I mean the original looked like you know quite a nice uh, pixel art kind of platformer game, mm. um, pretty much. But this one is uh, you know it's got that N sixty four three D style. Yeah, which uh, it, it is very in the vein of Mario sixty four, Banjo Kazooie. Uh, yeah, Kong sixty four. Yeah, and it's uh, kind of uh, it's kind of got mental health elements in there as well, like um, you know panic attacks and stuff. And uh, right. it's kind of like her world is interpreted on on the game as well. So it's mm. a, a different kind of mechanic. But I'm not sure how the the follow on for the N sixty four is gonna gonna work and reflect that. So it, so it's not on the N sixty four. It is available uh, on PC. Um, and it is completely for free. Um, so this is actually a celebration of Celeste. 
So they've done this to celebrate the six-year anniversary of Celeste, with Celeste 64 uh, being created by the original developers as well, uh, which are Maddie Forson and Noel Berry. And like I say, they've put this out completely for free uh, over on itch.io, which is fantastic. Uh, I was watching a um, playthrough of it earlier on, and it's not a short game. It looks about an hour to an hour and a half long as well, which is nice. But what's really stunning about it, because of it does look like a you know an absolutely beautiful N64 game, you know in all its polygon glory. What's absolutely fantastic about it is they made it in a week. Oh, uh, wow. It only took them a week to make this, um, and it, like I say, I haven't played Celeste. I've seen it. I've watched videos of it, um, and it really has captured the essence of that game. It looks like they've really captured kind of like the only way I can describe it is from you know how we went from Super Mario World to Mario 64 and the elements yeah. of the game and the mechanics and everything transferred beautifully. And, and that didn't like, always work. So, I mean, we yeah. remember, you know, famous examples like, you know, Bubsy 3D. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a tough thing to do back in the day, translate a 2D platformer into a 3D world. Yeah, absolutely. And it looks like they've managed to do this. And uh, as Ravi mentioned there, the famous kind of like air dash is present and kind of like, I don't want to say puzzle platformer because it isn't really a puzzle platformer, but the elements of, you know, trying to figure out where you have to go and how to climb up and, kind of kick off this wall and stuff like that it's all completely present in mm. this 64 version in the 3d 64 version um one thing that i really love about it is obviously famously the n64 kind of like style games sometimes you might lose yourself like if you're climbing up the side of a building or a mountain or, or something cameras just, would go behind the mountain or yeah something. cameras go home behind <laughs> the mountain stuff like that uh, in celeste 64 when you are you know when the camera does that and it goes behind a building or a mountain or something you are highlighted kind of like you will still see the outline of celeste so you know where you are uh like if you're gripping to a wall if only the thought of that back in the day yeah (laughs) yeah so i think that's a really cool little uh touch that they've put there um but yeah you know the fact that they've done it for free is awesome um and yeah go check it out i'm i'm i this is making me gonna go play Normal Celeste, then go play yeah. Celeste yeah, 64. Yeah, maybe this is one that we can do in the after hours, and uh, yeah. maybe we could do an indie game special or something. Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Nice. Yeah, play some of these games that uh, have, you know, just become massive legendary games in their own right from, you know, little indie devs. It definitely feels like the direction that a lot of these kind of indie studios are going now. It feels like the, the 2D pixel art thing, was it was all the rage like a decade mm. ago, but it does feel like now they're moving into that kind of PS1 N64 style 3D games, yeah. doesn't it? It feels like they've had a big comeback in the last like 18 months or so. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Which I'm all for, you know, I think it's uh, it's weird because for, for ages everyone was like, oh, you know, those early 3D games oh, they look so janky now. No one's ever going to want to play those again. You know, the, the, the 2D games have made so much better, but now there is nostalgia coming in for them. Bring yeah. back the texture warping and stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> <Love> <laughs> which that. appears as in this as tearing and stuff, you know, and draw distance problems and, you know, which now is a feature. You know, not a limitation. <laughs> feature so, screen uh, tearing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> on, on the feature list. Unique. So, uh, unique short draw distance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fog. Vaseline on your screen effect. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, very cool to see. So if you're a fan of Celeste and you want to play uh, a new spin on that, taking it into the world of 3D, that is available now. And I'll put that. And, of course, the rest of the stories, you don't have to Google around. I save you the job. Just check your show notes on your podcast app or head to the website at theretrohour.com. Right, patrons, stand by. We have got a few more New stories just for you coming up in just a moment, because if you join us on Patreon, that is one of the perks that you get. You get the normal podcast ad-free every week. You also get an extra, like, 
10-15 minutes of news that we do just for our patrons and uh, I try and get the podcast out early if I can some weeks as well and plenty more perks including access to our bonus podcast The After Hours if you join us as a gold member or above and an invite to the monthly patrons hangouts that are coming up at the end of the month as well so all the details to join us on Patreon are on the website right now at theretrohour.com we'd really appreciate your support Okay, before we chat to this week's special guest, Matthew Lehman from Amiga Kit, let's take a quick second to give a massive thank you to this week's sponsor, and it is a regular sponsor of the Retro Hour podcast. This is our wonderful friends at ExpressVPN. Now, have you guys checked your uh, your streaming platform bills recently? It seems like every time I uh, check my bank statements... It seems like Netflix has crept up by another couple of quid. and they, they, they convince us to cut the cord and then they increase everything and they go, ha-ha, yeah. <laughs> you've cut the cord. Um, yeah, we're going to charge you more. So insane. I think about the amount of services we've got. I mean, you know, I think I've mentioned this before we do. Uh, I've got Netflix and obviously I've got a 4K TV, so I've got to get the premium package of that, which I've got a feeling is like, I think it might be about 18 quid a month, maybe even more now. Um, we've got Disney Plus, you know, my missus watches that all the time, uh, Amazon Prime, Paramount YouTube Plus. Premium, yeah. Yeah, YouTube Premium I've got as well. I mean, there are so many of these services. And the problem is, I mean, you don't mind paying for a service if you're getting value from it. But did you know that, for example, talking about Netflix, you're paying, you know, all this money out every month, but you're literally getting access to a fraction of their library because in different countries around the world, Netflix has got thousands of shows that you probably can't watch in your country without using a VPN. Because, you know, because of the licensing rules and all that, they often only license shows based on a location. Or they swap around as well. So sometimes some will be available on one service, disappear and then turn up in another country and then come back. And, you know, um, it's it's hard to track and find your favourite shows. It is. And sometimes you might, you know, I don't know about you, I open Netflix sometimes and go through it. You know, I think they call it doom scrolling, don't they? Well, you know, there's a load of stuff on that. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, seen that, seen that. Any, anything I want to watch, I've kind of seen this month. But then if you um, have ExpressVPN on your device, you can literally just press a little button and change your online location. So then suddenly Netflix thinks, oh, okay, this guy's in America. Let's show him all the titles that are available on the American Netflix library that normally you can't see in the UK, which I know you do all the time, Ravi. You're always telling things about things that you watch on the, the US Netflix that we, we get very jealous that we haven't watched. Yeah, well, well, one of them recently that I've been watching on the uh, US Netflix is Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And, Classic. Um, that is that is a show that, um, you know, to be honest, you watch it and you can't believe that it's actually been aired. <laughs> Some yeah. of the stuff on that are absolutely hilarious. And uh, another one uh, that I know Dan's absolute favourite film, um, you know, he models himself on a lot of these people, uh, Mean Girls. Yeah, I wear Thursdays, I think it is. Yeah. USA. <laughs> So and, fetch. Yeah, so fetch. Don't make fetch happen, Dan. And uh, Lord of the Rings as well. Uh, and they're both on the Australian uh, Netflix. So, you know, moving around to different countries is absolutely great because you can find new content on there. And also Muriel's Wedding as well, which is a, another oh, yeah. great <laughs> chick flick. <laughs> yeah, so that's the thing. I mean, it is literally, I mean, it's so easy as well, isn't it? You open the app, you select the country name, you tap one button and you're there. Yeah, and it, and it and it's so fast that sometimes I have it starting up on my computer and I, I forget about it and uh, yeah. I'm like, oh, suddenly my location is in this country, you know. Yeah, streaming HD, you know, no buffering. There's apps available for all your devices, your phone, your laptop, um, your 
consoles, your smart TVs, and install it directly on there as well. And they've got servers in 94 different countries around the world. So again, access to thousands of new shows. And it doesn't just work with Netflix, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, lots more as well. So be smart with your money. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. ExpressVPN, it pays for itself. So get your money's worth. Use our exclusive link as well, and you will get an amazing offer. Of course, you know, we all sort one out for you. You'll get three months of ExpressVPN for free on top of a 12-month plan. So head to expressvpn.com slash retro. Use our exclusive link. Really helps out the podcast. It lets them know that we sent you there and get that three months for free on top of a 12-month plan. Expressvpn.com slash retro. And a massive thank you to our friends at ExpressVPN for their continued support. Right then, next, we're going to be going inside the world of Amiga Kit, one of the world's longest-running Amiga retailers, and finding out all about this uh, really interesting new device they've got coming out called the A600GS, geared towards people who use their Amiga for applications and productivity back in the day. We're going to be chatting to Matthew from Amiga Kit next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And you'll know from listening to previous episodes that Ravi and I, we don't need any excuse to talk about the Commodore Amiga, our favourite machine. And uh, we regularly keep you up to date on all the exciting developments in the world of Amiga. And, uh, you know, if we're talking about stuff that's happening on the Amiga scene in 2024, uh, one company that's really helped to keep the scene alive over the last couple of decades is Amiga Kit. Now, they're a company who specialise in providing hardware, software, accessories, all kinds of things for the Amiga in all its wonderful, wonderful guises. And we thought we'd welcome on the Managing Director of Amiga Kits. Tell us a bit about what they're doing and kind of the Amiga scene in 2024 and also their exciting new product, the A600GS, that is set to launch a bit later on this year. So let's welcome on the MD of Amiga Kit, Matthew Lehman. How's it going, Matthew? Hello, Dan. Hello, Ravi. It's uh, great to be with you today. Thanks so much for uh, giving me the opportunity to join you. Yeah, it's always nice to talk to you. And I mean, bizarrely, I mean, obviously, we've we've met so many times at Amiga events all around <laughs> Europe. You know, it's pretty shocking we haven't had you on the podcast until now. So it is. Uh, it's wonderful that you took the time to come on and um, share a bit about your history and also what's going on right now with Amiga Kit. Because I speak as someone who's been a, a customer of Amiga Kit and think, God, it must be knocking on. How long have you been around now? It must be nearly 20 years, is it? Well, yeah, this year, this year actually is our 20th anniversary. So right. yeah, we're, we're very, very timely to get you on then. <laughs> yes. And, and it's great. It's great uh, to meet you over the many, many years uh, in uh, lots of shows that we've been to. And, uh, yeah. uh, and uh, like you said, you've been a customer. Ravi's been a customer as well. So, yeah, so yeah. Well, it's interesting to kind of, uh, I don't think one thing I, I've never asked you about before, but it's uh, its always interesting to find out a bit of history on our guests. I mean, you know, <laughs> what initially got you into the wonderful world of computers then? Where did kind of your journey begin as a kid then? What, what was your first machine? What well, well my, my dad brought home uh, an Acorn um, Atom back in the 80s, about 1984, something like that. And uh, I thought, what, what is this strange computer that he's uh, brought home? And uh, I started programming on it, and it wasn't it wasn't the best experience. And shortly after that, uh, I, I suppose that whet his appetite to buy a prop computer, and he bought um, a Commodore Plus Four, uh, which wow. uh, he brought home with with all the accessories. You know, do you remember the? Um, 
the printer, the the old old noisy NPS SATA one, I think it was called. Yeah, um, I've got one of those still to this <laughs> you day. Still got one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the disc drive, uh, the the, um, the five and a quarter inch disc drive. So so he had this. I think at the time they were putting it on as a promotion, and uh, mm. so it was it was a good deal that that he got it all together. And um, he said to me, "Your computers are the future." Because remember, in nineteen in the nineteen eighties, early nineteen eighties, they were very very geeky. Very uh, not many uh, people had a, a home computer, and uh, he encouraged me to start programming mm. and um, to look to look into these machines. So um, I. I I looked into it and uh, I, I started playing some of the the games that you you got with the plus four. Do you do you remember some of the the favourites like um, Fire Ant and Treasure Island? Oh, yeah. and I, I think it uh, works. Yeah, we've had a lot of I plus four talk. was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've had a lot of plus four talk because I know, I know that was Dan's first system. Oh, as well. yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, you both go. kind of share that. Yeah. It's bizarre because you know, to me as a kid, obviously in you know, that pre-internet era, I knew a few kids who kind of got the plus four in that. You know, they were doing that fire sale to sell them off cheap. But That's recently right, on the yeah. podcast, it seems like every other person we've had on is like, hey, I started with the plus four. <laughs> and as much as it gets derided, I think that machine, you know, for me, that introduced me to the world of computers. So as much as people kind of, you know, poke fun of at that machine for not being as successful as, as a 64, it definitely had its place in history, I think, in terms of starting people in the industry and getting them interested yes. in computers. Yes. And it was very easy to pick up because the, the basic was better than and the basic that you got with the Commodore 64. So yeah. it was a bit more accessible and you could do a bit more with it. So you didn't have to remember so many pokes and peek commands that you did with the Commodore 64. And um, it was a shame that Commodore didn't give it a bit more memory and it didn't have a SID chip and all that sort of stuff. But it could have been a, a, it could have been a nice little upgrade on the 64. But uh, Commodore in the infinite wisdom took memory away and... Uh, and decided to downgrade the sound on it. So it wasn't quite the potential it should have been. And that's why they had a fire sale on it, of course, to, uh, to clear the stocks of it. Uh, so that's, that's where I started off. But um, I thought I'd, I'd get my own computer. So my dad made me save up my pocket money, it seemed, for uh, endless months. And I eventually bought uh, a Commodore C64C then. And I was very close to saving the full amount and my dad then stepped in at the last minute and paid the balance so i had this shiny new commodore c64c for uh, for the summer holidays and uh then my commodore experience continued uh from there um you know there were some great games on the, the c64 do you remember uh the flight similar um the flight game ace which had synthesized yes. speech on it and, uh, yeah, and jaw dropping when i first heard that at the time it was like whoa yeah. he got speech um but uh there, there, were, there was lots of nice uh sean southern games on there as well um trailblazer do you remember that and uh Aztec Challenge, that was another good game I used to like playing on the uh, C64. Uh, but I, I, I enjoyed using that machine. Um, but then my my uh, friend, uh, his brother, uh, who had a job at the time and he could afford all these things, he decided to get an Amiga 500. And uh, I remember going around uh, my my friend's house and he said oh, come and see what my brother's got upstairs so we we went upstairs to his room and that was my first taste of the Amiga uh, Amiga 500s and and uh, he showed me 
Barbarian at the time and what, you know, the t- 10 star pack that you got with it with all these games. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just such a step up from the eight bits, the graphics, the sound, the way it almost at the time, it seemed like it instantly loaded, but of course it didn't. Um, but compared with the old tapes on my Commodore 64, it was like night and day, but, uh, uh, that, that was a real sea change then. Um, seeing what the 16 bits could do you could see the potential of the 16 bit uh, it was so strange you switch it on you with the Commodore 64 with a plus four you you see the basics prompt um that's the first thing that you see on the screen with the the amiga there was nothing like that it just said insert a disc and you're just like yeah Whoa. and that freaked yeah. me out when i got my amiga 500 <laughs> i'm like oh there must be some i was hitting the keyboard like you know yeah where's the prompt there's got to be something in there but obviously you had to load software first it was very different and i i guess when you got the amiga as well you, you there was a, still quite a bit of choice out there as well um what really made the amiga stand out then and uh Make, make you kind of choose it actually actually the same friend we we went around uh mutual friends and he had an atari uh so so we were still on the eight bits at this time and i i i had a taste for the atari and it, it looked quite elegant because it's uh, a bit more futuristic than the eight bits and the graphics were better and, and you could uh, that that was probably one of the first interactions that i had with the 16-bit machines but um it wasn't really like the Amiga. It didn't have the creative feel that the Amiga had, you know. And I, I think um, the Amiga in uh, that was one of the things that the Amiga did. It, uh, it had a strong community around it, even in those days. Um, mostly, there was people uh, swapping discs and and things like that. There was copy parties, but there was a lot of people at home uh, firing up Death Pack and playing with assembly, trying to make their own games, using Octomed to make some composition, Deluxe Paint to 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 be creative. And that, the Amiga was more than a game system because of that. And uh, that that whole scene was quite... Uh, when you're a teenager and you see what your friends are doing creatively on a computer and not just playing games, that that was quite um, quite a draw to the, the Amiga over other yeah. systems that were out there. I think a lot of the kind of general public forget about the creative side with the Amiga and stuff. And I was, I was wondering, what setup did you have? Did you have any, like, extras with it or any kind of devices you were using uh, to help your creativity? Um, yeah, well, you know... I, I think the, the number one, I'm not sure about you, but you probably were the same as me. The number one upgrade on my Amiga that uh, really I couldn't do without would be the hard drive. Um, yeah. When you've got a, a floppy disk Amiga and you go to ha- to a hard disk Amiga, oh, wow, it just, it's a different world. And uh, I remember buying my first hard disk, it was a, a 60 megabyte our drive and it cost a fortune at the time yeah, i remember uh, we got a 30 meg one and it was just like mind-blowingly expensive. mine was mine was 20 megabytes and i thought that was an wow. infinite amount yes. i'm never gonna fill all and then i installed monkey island 2 half of it wiped out with one game yes yes of course uh, um well um my my friend had a 20 megabyte drive and uh I just waited and waited because I couldn't afford a hard drive at the, t- at the time, you know, being a poor teenager. And um, I could see that he, he had everything on there, but he used some sort of compression. Do, do you remember the compress compressors that you could 
uh, they would dynamically compress your hard drive oh, as you like power as you copied. packer. I remember was one. It was yeah. a bit like power packer, but it every time you copied to your hard drive, it would double the space on your on your hard drive. So you'd have so it was like dynamic um, compression, but it would mm. slow down your Amiga. And he had mods on there and things like that. So his twenty meg hard drive, he could he could push the limits on it. So I waited and waited. I was glad I waited in the end. And I remember 60 meg coming out and thinking, well, I'll, I'll pay pay the extra for these 60 meg hard drives. And uh, I think there was a company, do you remember Gas Diner in London? Yes. Yeah, I think they had the best, the best price on the uh, 60 meg hard drive. So I decided to uh, put my money down and it came in the post and I installed it. And well, <laughs> I never looked back after that. But but that was just the start of the journey because then I needed extra memory, I needed an mm. accelerator, and it that was the great thing about the Amiga. You, you could build on it and extend it. So uh, it was really ex- ex- extensible machine because of that. One thing I always found as well is in that area, you know, before we were all connected to the internet or even, you know, before I got involved in bulletin boards and that kind of thing, I mean, the, <laughs> the, the central thing to the Amiga community was the magazines. So, yes. I mean, did you have any yes. uh, favourite magazines that you'd pick up like every issue? Well, I was probably like, I think most most Amiga uh, enthusiasts, I bought every single magazine, you know, throughout the month. That was, mm. that was you go to your WH Smiths or John Menzies and you see um, the principal one I'd always go for would be Amiga Format. And then yeah. then it got a bit addictive. So you, you buy Amiga Shopper and... Uh, uh, you, you buy a CU Amiga, which was great. Um, Amiga User International. The ones I didn't buy was um, things like uh, the Amiga Power and uh, the One. Uh, do you remember the One magazine? Yeah, dedicated uh, games mags then, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I liked games, but I liked quite a balance of things in the magazine. So, uh, you know, if I was really desperate, I'd buy, I'd buy those. But <laughs> for my Amiga fix, if I if I ran out of my Amiga fix in that month, but um, did you uh, live off cover discs as well? I think we all did, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Any favourites that spring to mind, like cover discs from back in the day? Oh well, the best cover discs, I think, Amiga computing cover discs. I don't know if you ever saw those. They had a game on there. They had tune of the month. They had a development. Uh, source code of the month. Um, so there was a whole array of stuff that they fitted on this one small cover disc. It was it was extraordinary. And it would always link to an article in the actual magazine. So so you could um you could get the cover disc and, and go to the the uh, the the development section of the magazine and all the examples will be on the cover disc or they would have the tune of the month or or the latest demo you know the latest games demo so you could see what was coming out it was it was great um but later on i'm i'm sure you remember see you make and make it format they decided to go to cd editions of of the yes. cover discs and uh that was pre-internet. That was so useful because then suddenly they would have to fill 660 meg of, of data. They felt obligated to fill 660 meg. So they obviously went to all these BBSs and internet sites and things like that in the early days and downloaded as Usenet and all that sort of stuff and downloaded as much data as they could. So for us who were offline, you know, 
accessing all this data every month, you could see what everyone else was doing around the world with the Amiga. Um, so that that was a really nice time for the Amiga, I think, uh, a very exciting time to see. To it, uh, We were almost connected with the CDs, you know, um, because we, we had a, a, we could see what other people were creating uh, PD games and uh, tunes and all this sort of stuff. It was, it was a great time. Did you ever go to any of the uh, big shows? I think you're a bit older than me. When I went, oh, I was about 12 years old and uh, <laughs> kind of with my dad, you know, but they were still yeah. really exciting. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I remember travelling down to London and uh, did you go to the Hammersmith show and... I think I went to the last uh, World of Amiga, which was at the Novotel. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's, uh, that's like a, a distant memory from when I was younger. <laughs> I went, uh, yeah, I, I went to a couple of World of Amigas, and this was obviously after Commodore had filed for bankruptcy, and uh, Petro was trying to to rejuvenate the Amiga. So it yeah, was... there were a few dance acts around. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> stuff like yeah. that. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> the annex, uh, dancers and st- stuff like that. Um, uh, so it, it was, we were all, we were all hoping, dearly hoping that the Amiga could come back for the future as the catchphrase was. And, uh, we, we were hoping because at the time, do you remember ASCOM? They brought out brand new Amiga 1200s in their shops, in their PC shops. You could actually walk into an ESCOM shop. Yeah. So they bought out the Amiga, didn't they? And and we had, um, I think we had three ESCOM stores in Nottingham or two. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but we could barely find the Amigas in them. I think at one point they were displaying them in the window, but they just had the uh, kickstart um, screen. (laughs) running continually (laughs) yeah because they didn't know what to do with it i remember in van evangelizing to uh uh my my wife's uncle about because he was umming and ahhing over getting a multimedia pc or on amiga and he was a mega guy before so he had amiga 500s and uh we went into an escom shop and i managed to get him to buy a magic pack um as they were selling this and uh yeah he, he he then, of course, had to embark on, he needs a hard drive and he needs an accelerator and all these sort of stuff. So he came with us to the shows at Hammersmith and uh, there was quite a few retailers around these shows and you could walk around and it, it was it was brilliant. Every, every single stall had something exciting to buy for your Amiga um, and, and we managed to pick up, and there was some good bargains we had, we managed to pick him up a, a Ram cars and the and an yeah, accelerator. So at the time that Commodore collapsed, um, there was a huge kind of scene still around the Amiga. And, yes, um, yes. It yeah. kind of, ESCOM had it for a while and they started doing plans, but it kind of fell on the third-party retailers. Um, yes. Do, do you remember any kind of big companies at the time? And uh, they, they ended up kind of taking on the yeah. user base, didn't they? Yeah, because uh, you walk around these shows and they, there was Gas Diner, like I, expl- uh, I mentioned earlier. Power Computing, they were really good. I, yes, I yeah. ordered a lot from Power Computing back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, there was iTech as well. Um, uh, Golden, was it Golden, Golden Valley Products? Golden uh, Image. GVP. Uh, yeah, go, uh, yeah, 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 G- GVP. Uh, uh, I think uh, GVP's distributor in the UK was Power Computing. 
Okay. Uh, I think people like Blittersoft. Do you remember Blittersoft? And, yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, the uh, Weird Science. Uh, they, there was the the UK was a hotbed for for great retailers and innovation, and uh, you get fantastic products back in the day, like the Squirrel Scuzzy, and and uh, obviously Phase Five was selling some really great accelerators for you yeah it was so it was it was quite a long period of time but i'm just putting this in context for listeners that might know about that period which is probably quite a few actually um (laughs) the the whole idea was people were trying to keep the the amiga alive and and the the hope and stuff like magazines were still selling on the shelves really well yes yes Um, even though commodore and escom had kind of you know, um, collapsed and uh, gone away. All these people remained and they had like future plans as well. They were trying to put in future technology. And and one company that I remember, especially being in the UK, was iTech as well. What was the kind of your history with iTech? And um, uh, do you remember them bringing out products and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. So iTech, going from... uh, So after the World of Amiga shows in Hammersmith... Uh, the Amiga got quite small towards 2000, 2001. And uh, there was a small magazine open called Total Amiga. And they, they decided to put on a, a smaller version of the world of Amiga. And iTech were the principal retailer to to this show. It was called World of Amiga Southeast. And iTech was showing... Uh, previously, they had always done Amiga classic upgrades, but now they were venturing into the next generation Amiga uh, hardware. And uh, they they had partnered with a company called Essena in um, Germany, and they were making this Amiga One product, which was a, a, a new motherboard, a next generation Amiga mo- motherboard. It seemed a very ambitious project. Um, and uh, I remember going to this smaller uh, cut-down Amiga, Amiga show uh, in the uh, world of Amiga in Southeast, and they had the uh, early prototype Amiga One there. And they were and Alan Redhouse, who ran uh, iTech, he was uh, explaining to everyone uh, about the hardware and uh, where where it was going. And Amiga OS was progressing from from the classic. Amiga OS to this new generation Amiga OS 4. Um, so that I don't think at the time they had it fully running on this board and there were some issues, but it seemed like there was a new dawn to the Amiga coming. So you guys ended up, um, once iTech kind of collapsed, they were searching for this new architecture and this new kind of speed. Um, you guys ended up buying a lot of their stock, I guess, and then forming Amiga Kit. Yes, well, we we were already formed in two thousand and four, but I think the Amiga One project, it uh, iTech had lots of problems with it because it was very ambitious, like I said, and I think um, I don't know for certain, but I th- I think all these problems, you know, they were they were too much hassle for for them to uh, to carry on and so they, and at this t- at the time 2004 2000 uh, the the amiga was 2005 the, the amiga was in serious decline uh, people yeah. were people were skip putting amigas in skips you know they weren't uh, i remember amigas on ebay going for about 20 pounds I, I i literally was walking my dog with my uh, friend 
and yeah. uh, turned around and there was a stack of Amigas on the floor and uh, oh, games, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> and we just wow. picked wow. them up straight away. But I also remember at that time, Amiga yeah. Kit was probably one of the only places that you could order from and uh, get any kind of new upgrades or adapters. Absolutely. Well, this was the problem, you know, um, people like Power Computing were closing. Uh, I think they were the last, the last ones to close. And, and then um, iTech had sort of gone into hibernation. They were, it wasn't clear whether from their website whether they were still working in the Amiga market. So that's that was the catalyst to set up Amiga Kit because I thought, Right, we need something in the UK. We need a retailer, at least one retailer, you know, in the UK. Um, and it was it was quite dark times at the time. Uh, uh, and no one else was serving the market. So Amiga Kit was set up uh, and uh, we continued with the project from, from there. And we thought, right, what new products can we make? How can we get into the market? And then I had contact from Alan Redhouse, who ran iTech, and he initially made contact and he said, oh, do you want to buy some of my stock? You know, so it was a small collection of the stock for X. So we negotiated a, a value for it. So that was all done and dusted. And then he contacted me again. Oh, do you want to buy a bit more? And then a bit more. And we had quite a few conversations. And by, by the end of it, we I was buying basically all his, in, his remaining stock, his residual stock. Um, the final... The final thing was that I had to, uh, which was quite sad, I had to um, go up to his his warehouse up in Stokesley, I think it was, so uh, not far from Middlesbrough. Um, so I travelled up there and I had to uh, take the final bits of stock out of his warehouse and hand the keys to his landlord because he had, he had oh, wow. f- finished the business. So that was quite poignant and quite sad to see the uh, that chapter of of iTech close but we we ended up with huge amounts of iTech stock in the end and uh we had to warehouse it and and in fact some some of the stocks even to this day we've we've still got in our warehouse you know for me as someone who I, I was into the Amiga you know real hardcore Amiga fan until around 2001 and then I think, you know, I'd gone away to university at that point, you know, and Windows XP came out and that was kind of usable, you know, Ooh. kind of felt not too far away from the Amiga. Um, you know, actually got rid of my Amigas at the time. And then oh. I saw an eBay listing a few years later, got an Amiga 600, then a 1200, ended up getting back into it. And it was really around 2007 that I re-entered the Amiga scene. And that's when I became aware of Amiga Kit because, you yeah. know, when I, when I dropped off in 01, like you said, it was, you know, iTech were kind of the big player. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, you guys are still here 20 years later, you know, and you are you know, a full-time Amiga retailer. People will be like, really? Yes. These people are doing this as a full-time business. So give us a bit about kind of your, uh, your setup at Amiga Kit then. How many staff do you have? And uh, how do you maintain running an Amiga business full-time? in 2024 it, it isn't easy it isn't easy unfortunately um we, we've got four members of staff in the uk and uh we've most of them are based in cardiff um I, i'm not based in cardiff anymore but it is it isn't uh that easy to service the amica community and uh, for the last 20 years we've had some really good times and uh some some years where it's it's been difficult to be a full-time Amiga retailer, but we've always stuck to our our principles and uh, we haven't ventured outside the Amiga uh, market. So so we've always tried to service the Amiga market as 
best we can. And we're, we're very reliant on our loyal customer base, you know, um, like uh, yourself and many other people. Uh, we've had uh, customers for many, many years and they've um, they've come back. So that's that's always been great. Uh, we've met them at shows. Putting a name to face is, is great. And uh, w- without our customer base, we, we wouldn't be able to survive. So um, we're very grateful for that. It's, it's, it's really impressive, actually, because I do remember there were a few companies like uh, Vizalia, which has actually yeah. gone yeah. recently. And, yeah, sad. Uh, mm. Analogic and stuff that were... Uh, back from the old days and of course uh, <laughs> Steve Jones returning uh, yeah. with his checkmate which uh, you know kind of warms the heart to see uh, <laughs> some of these old uh, brands and names you know it's great it's great to see oh it's very sad about Vesalia because uh, Guido was he was a f- fantastic retailer uh, he did a lot of good stuff for the mega market um, he sponsored a lot of hardware projects as well so he wasn't just a retailer, you know. He made things happen, which uh, which was uh, to the benefit of the entire community. And obviously, he's uh, closed recently, and he he's hopefully he'll have a great retirement. Uh, but like you said, it's, it's it's fantastic to say to see long-standing names in the Amiga community um, still still contributing back back to our 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 space. So um, long yeah. may it continue. Well, uh, talking of hardware as well, you know, uh, you've, you've got your own device coming out and uh, we've had uh, Palion on with the uh, 2600. We've had, uh, you know, Vampire who were previously on. We've had Retro Games Limited. We've had quite a lot of companies that have released devices, uh, you know, the uh, Spectrum Next as well. And uh, you guys are coming with the A600GS. So um, could you tell us what is the A600GS? Uh, the A600GS is... A low-cost um, device that can access classic Amiga applications and games. So, so the idea is uh, very similar to uh, a lot of uh, these mini boxes that you've got out there. You can plug it uh, conveniently into your HDMI, HDMI television, uh, play games, um, and but also access applications i remember what we were saying earlier about the amiga was was different from other systems because it wasn't just a games uh platform it yeah, there had, was a serious side you know? yeah 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 your creative side and that that's what makes the amiga wonderful and the community wonderful is because they are so creative uh so what we've decided to do is put some famous amiga applications on pre-installed on the a600gs um one of them obviously um is very very well known is the optimate package um and there's been some lots of uh, notable notable songs uh, music in the, in the past that's that's been created with with optimate uh, but we are, we're also putting things like um, P-Paint, personal paint on, on there uh, because we're, uh, we know that apart from playing games, uh, ex-Amiga users and Amiga users in the community, they love the creative side of the Amiga. And uh, why not have these preloaded on the A600GS so you can, you can enjoy them? Um, we've got the source code, so we've decided not just to take the old 
the Octomed or take the old P-Paint, but it's been redeveloped. So there, um, new features being added. We've listened to to our customers and what they want to see on these these uh, uh, famous packages, um, and these new features will will be in the new versions of Octomed P-Paint, and uh, that will be ready to go when when we launch the con- uh, the uh, game system. Because yeah, I've been looking at you know some of the I remember you, you were at Ravi's Kickstarter event um, last year yeah. as well. There was there's a prototype there, and um, also you know you've got you've got a website set up, and I know you've put some images on social media. So to describe to people, this is basically it, it's a very small device about you know the size of a looks like the size of a deck of cards really. Um, small little black box with the branding on there as well. I mean, obviously you know there's been talk about this on the Amiga social media pages and forums. So some people have kind of said you know is is this like a Raspberry Pi in there running custom software? Software. We've heard that it's ARM-based. I mean, can you tell us the difference between this and a Raspberry Pi and what hardware is it based on? Is, is there like custom hardware in here? What, what is it exactly? Yeah, so it's um, the prototype that you saw in Ravi's Kickstarter event last year that was that was in a much smaller box. What we've done now is uh, put it in a slightly larger box. It's um, It has got now two 9-pin uh, Mega joystick slash mouse ports on there. So you can plug in your legacy controllers into into it. Nice. Uh, so that's on the front. And on the back, then, you've got things like USB, HDMI, uh, audio out. Um, but it's also got Bluetooth and um, uh, uh, network ca- capability. A lot, I'm, a lot of the mini boxes don't have don't have internet connectivity or, or Bluetooth. Um, so the, uh, it's, it's running, a, it's got an ARM sock in it, you know, pretty much all everything these days has and and that's the cheapest way of because this has got to be a low low price point and uh the the arms are, are pretty good they uh the are fast uh four gig of memories on there so there's plenty of memory for running your apps and of course yeah your games and things like that um it, we're going to put 128 gig storage in there so so that should be enough, I think, for most people to store all their games and, and their applications. Plus, there's uh, we've divided the the disk up, so you've got your work areas where you can create your own pictures. You can create stuff in Optimed. You can save all all your uh, creations to that. Um, and that, then you've got USBs on the back, so you can plug in a flash drive and download yeah. all your stuff. Do you have a USB C as well? It's yeah. USB-C to power it. So, uh, oh, nice. Yeah, it's, uh, that's the other great thing about ARMS, isn't it? They don't, they don't need a lot of power. So um, it can be powered up with, with uh, USB-C. Um, and uh, I, th- I think it offers everything that uh, a classic Amiga fan would want in a small package without breaking the bank. And, uh, and it might be a discretionary purchase for somebody who remembers the Amiga and decides, oh, I, I want to, I want to resume my, my creativity with Optimed that I, I, I did 10 years ago, you know, or, and I don't, one of the problems is buying a classic Amiga is really difficult these days because the price has just gone through the roof. And then you're buying a computer, which is essentially 30 years old. How do you know about reliability? And then the third problem is that uh, to play with Optimed, you need extra memory you need a probably a hard disk and all this sort of all these extra things they just soon add up so we try to make it really accessible for for users to 
to just grab this small box, plug it into their HDMI monitors or television. Um, it comes with a mouse, comes with a joypad. You can hook up a USB keyboard if you want and just just start enjoying enjoying your old nostalgia on on P Paint and Octomade. Uh, we've got we got our Ami Bench on there, which Ami Bench is your your desktop environment, and it should be instantly familiar to anyone who who remembers the Amiga. So, um, so uh, we're hoping it's going to be a good experience for people. Yeah, and I, I was also wondering uh, what the kind of relationship with developing it with uh, Rabbit Hole Computing was as well, because they're the the folks behind the um, Zulu SCSI and the, yeah, uh, yeah, SCSI SCSI's two SD devices, which are, are really popular. Well, uh, Alex is a very good friend of mine. Uh, he's the the, uh, the brains behind uh, Rabbit Hole Computing, which, like you said, creates Zulu. And do you remember the SCSI to SD, which preceded it? Um, yeah. yeah. Now he's he's always got he's he's always got ideas, hardware ideas, and he was he's always throwing things at at uh, at me for, about this product. So so um, he he was one of the uh, he used his internal in-house developer to lay out the board and uh, and help us with the with the hardware side of things. And so we're very grateful for that. Um, and they're, they're part of the the beta test and development team. So, so it's a very collaborative product, you know? Yeah, one thing I was wondering as well is um, obviously in the 21st century now, all devices are internet connected. And I've seen that the, the A600GS, you've got, um, you know, remote updates on there. You've also got something called the uh, the AMI store as well, which I'm guessing is kind of like your version of like the the app store. Is, yes. is that, how's that going to function? How does that work? Yeah, so so we, as you probably know, uh, we're we're involved with the next generation system. So on the X five thousand, the X one thousand, um, Ami Store was created for for the next generation um, uh, um, Amiga one systems. Um, no, that, that's fine because uh, that that app store can run on those uh, because they had internet connectivity out the box and. Um, the app store is quite uh, graphic intensive, you know, because it looks like a, an app store that you would find on more modern hardware. Mm. Now, the problem is when you've got a classic Amiga, how do you do that? Because you you need the extra memory, you need the internet ca- connectivity. So, so we saw an opportunity with the A600GS. Uh, you've got plenty of memory. You've got it can run full 1080p 32-bit screens on AmiBench on the desktop. Um, so. Ami Store suddenly became uh, viable to run on this hardware, and uh, uh, Aeon, uh, who owns uh, Octomed, owns PPaint, they have a library of other classic Amiga applications, which uh, could, uh, would be of interest to a lot of the Amiga community. Um, so, having this Ami Store system, which works. We, has been running for the last five years on the next generation machines, also on the A600GS, can make sense. And and users then can exp, uh, download 68K uh, classic Amiga applications that have been updated. But also we want to support um, the new... There's a lot of new developers who are making new classic games for the Amiga. Mm. Um, so we, we want to really support those guys and encourage those guys to 
show their their work to the wider community. Uh, recently, I went to Amiga Island and uh, Nifrig Games. Uh, he's produced some wonderful new stuff. But but unless you're on Twitch or or some of the other social um, platforms, you'll never hear about them. So so we're hoping that the A600GS will be a way of show. Uh, showcasing some of this new talent and some of some of these new games which are coming out for the classic Amiga. Yeah, I I, I think it's um, really interesting to have games on there as well. And uh-huh. I, I was wondering how they load as well because I know WHD load was a, a very popular um, way to kind of load images back yeah. in the days as well, <laughs> especially when they didn't have hard drive installs. Um, but uh, yeah, w- what kind of options do you have for games on there as well and like saving states and stuff like that? Well, yeah, the most basic way of doing this is through ADFs. So the A600GS has got a, a full games menu and you can you can just use your USB, just plug into the back of the, the A600GS, select the ADF that you want uh, configure it for the platform you want because some 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 Amiga discs, uh, some Amiga games, they only work on uh, like the legacy, like the Amiga five hundred or the Amiga yeah, six hundred. They can be a bit fussy, can't they? They can, them, you know? they can yeah. indeed. Yeah, unfortunately. So you can select very quickly, edit edit the title, select the platform it was aimed at, uh, then press start, and then the game will run. Uh, you know, according to that that uh, platform. We did find that uh, quite a few games as well that we could we could make a hard drive like a little mini hard drive environment and put games into those. Um, when we went to because we we approached the WHD Load author and when we went to to offer him some sort of licensing uh, that's uh, asking for licensing for for the A six hundred GS. Unfortunately, he is. Uh, had an exclusive deal with uh, some some other company, so we couldn't choose WHD Load. So uh, we we looked at other options like uh, JST. Do you remember the JST system? Yeah, so uh, yeah. that's like a way of loading, um, basically running floppy disks games on a hard disk, isn't it? So you don't yes. have to keep swapping disks and everything. Yeah, yeah, and and it's also compatible with WHD Load. A lot of the uh, the slaves are, are compatible with WHD Load, and, and um, so we looked at that system as well. So it was, well, we're looking at incorporating that uh, into the into the system, um, and uh, hopefully uh, we can we can help make JST even more popular than it is. Uh, I, I remember way way before um, WHD loads back twelve fifteen years ago, we used to use JST for everything. You know that that was uh, that was the default thing, and then WHD load came. Ar- along and had JST support. And uh, recently, JST has been redeveloped and it's got WHD load support. So uh, so it seems like a good system uh, uh, to have rather than have the WHD load. Will it be easy for users to put their own games onto the system? Yes. Um, so you, uh, you can do it two ways. So like, like I described, you've got the games menu. So as soon as you switch it on, you can go into the games menu and uh, you've got pictures of floppy disks, and you can you can um, put in a USB flash drive. You can download your game as an ADF, and then it will be stored in in your in your system. And you can configure it as you want, or the, uh, to the best 
the best uh, optimized way to run it on, on the A600GS. And that those settings will be always saved and you can press start and, the, and it will start straight away. Um, the other way of doing this is you, uh, we've got AmiBench, which is the system that's uh, the desktop system that's actually on on the A600GS. You could go into AmiBench, and you've got uh, a word partition, and uh, you can you can save whatever you like in there. You could you could put loads of games in there if you want, and run them with if you want to with WHD Load if you own WHD Load, or uh, or if um, you want to use JST, you could use JST. So it, it's up to you. The flexibility is there. And, and there are games packs that I've seen around that you can, yeah, uh, you know, if the user wants to do that, they can they can do it from their, their uh, unofficial USB. sources. <laughs> yeah, I, saw, I saw you did a talk and you mentioned uh, Bluetooth audio and that sounds yeah. really interesting. So can you like separately send the audio to like a soundbar or to yes, you know, yes. headphones? Oh, that's great. Cause you know, some complex setups, you have to go through your TV and now, <laughs> oh, all of this kind of stuff. But if you could pick it up as just a, a, a Bluetooth audio device. Yeah, it's, it's quite, it's quite straightforward because um, you've got audio settings, audio preferences, as we call it. You click on that, um, or you use your joypad to navigate down to it. You click on scan for Bluetooth devices, and it will scan the vicinity for, for and it'll bring up a list of all the Bluetooth devices. So you click pair next to the device that you want to uh, access. And make sure the speaker is in pairing mode as well, and then they'll just, They'll just join, and then you just uh, you direct all the sounds to the Bluetooth device. Uh, you can select the volume as well remotely on the A600GS, and uh, away to go. I, I tried it with Bluetooth headphones the other day. My my daughter had some Bluetooth headphones for Christmas, so I thought, well, I'll just try those and see if it works, and it worked for, fine with those as well. So, it's good uh, if you're playing on it in the living room or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause if the wife says, uh, what is that terrible <laughs> retro music? <laughs> yeah. It's an acquired taste to some people, isn't it? I know, yeah. <laughs> well, Matthew, I, I think it sounds a really interesting project. And I mean, you know, from it, that's the thing. I mean, the stuff like the A500 Mini out there that are really targeted towards, you know, <laughs> retro games players. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the first thing I did when I got my hands on the A500 Mini is, you know, basically try and hack it and get workbench running on there and applications and stuff so and, and like you said the Amiga was such a creative machine and I've got a lot of similar memories to you you know spending loads of times in applications and exploring those cover CDs and I think for fans of that side of the Amiga this does sound like a a really nice solution where they're not going to have to try and, you know, force a way to get applications installed on it that weren't meant to run on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, basically where it fits in the market, and I appreciate, you know, you might not have all these details tied down yet, any kind of idea on rough kind of release date or rough pricing, what, what it's going to cost? Yeah, the, the price is going to be £100 plus VAT, which is about £120. And um, that will come with, so you will get your... The latest version of P-Paint pre-installed, which is 7.4, you get Octomed, which is version 8, which we've gone to the 1996 source code and continued development on that. And uh, you get AmiBench on there pre-setup, so you don't, no messing around AmiBench is on there. With We've commissioned a nice icon set, so it looks really nice. 32-bit AmiBench background, you know, with some nice backgrounds and things. 
Um, it won't come with Amistore straight out of the box. So we're releasing it, and then a couple of months later, we will push Amistore out. But uh, we, we just want to tweak that and get that exactly right. But it will have... Um, uh, we On the next generation Amigas, we've got a program called Updater, which works on Workbench and uh, looks for all the Amiga files that it needs to update. And um, Updater will be on this system as well. So it will connect to uh, the server that Amistore runs on, which is called the Amisphere, and mm. uh, download updates in real time for the users. So they don't need to worry about setting up all your... Your, your desktop environment, Yami Bench environment, worry about files being up to date because we'll just push them down, you know, um, periodically as we as we develop uh, new versions of, of the files. So we're trying to make it as easy as possible and so people don't have to tinker under the under the engine, you know, and, and get get this optimal system. And the and the thing thing is with Ami Bench is it's uh, all based on our own software that we developed over many years. Um, so, uh, it's, it's a cohesive environment and, and that's, that's what we're trying to make it as easy as possible for, for the end user. Yeah. And I know you've got a website, um, a600gs.com. Is that the best place for people to go to uh, get updates? Uh, yes. Yeah. If you go to a600gs.com, it's, um, a holding page at the moment, but, uh, but we are taking email, uh, emails from customers who are uh, potential customers who are interested in the system. If you go up to the top, there's, there's a row of four icons. You can click on the wiki icon and it will give you all the, the fine detail about the machine. Uh, so how it, how it's, um, how to use the software and all that sort of stuff. And, and every, Every week or so, we're updating the the wiki, so it is getting bigger and bigger, and uh, we're hoping that's going to be the definitive resource for for the machine. So people mm. can could go there; they can they can see exactly all the different facets of the of the computer, um, and uh, hopefully that will be the uh, the the one stop shop for it. But uh, a six hundred gs dot com is is the official website. Yes. Fantastic. Well, I mean, even, you know, someone like me who I'm looking over at my um, 060-based Amiga 1200 next to me, <laughs> got an A4000. I'm nice. still excited to get my hands on this because, you know, you just can't have too much Amiga in your life, I don't think. So no, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, more options is always a good thing. So, um, yeah, wish you all the best with it, Matthew. And obviously, Thank I imagine you. we're going to see you at events. Have you got plenty lined up for the, the summer already? We have, yes. I, I, I'm very excited to... Uh to visit uh, Ravi's event for the second time. So we went last yep. year uh, to the inaugural Kickstart event in Nottingham, and uh, this year we'll be there again. Um, oh, plenty of beers will be flowing, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's always a good thing. You got me there. So. <laughs> and before then, we've got, uh, we got a show in London um, just before that, and uh, um, no, no Amiga... 30 and uh, no Amiga 39 this year in Germany, sadly. So, um, that's that's uh, usually one on our calendar, but we will be at Ami West then in October. And anything else that pops up, uh, we've just been to Amiga Island showing the A600GS there. So, um, anything else that pops up, if we can, if we can support people with their shows or, or their uh, meets, that we're, we're more than happy to to support support or sponsor shows you know to keep keep uh, the scene growing 
Fantastic. And obviously the Amiga Kit website, you know, if people want to buy uh, new hardware for their classic machines, you've got a massive selection on there as well, which I'll, I'll link up in the show notes. Uh, well, Matt, it's been incredible catching up with you. Best of luck with the A600GS. Thank and, you. Uh, look forward to seeing you at a few events over the summer. Yes, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you guys and sharing a beer sometime. Yeah, it goes without saying. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, Matthew. Lovely to talk to you. Great to talk to you.